All right, good to reconvene with you. Here we are with Far Middle, episode 134, sports dedication time. Episode 134, the premiere date is December 13th. That marks the birthday of a sports icon that very few people today are aware of. And another person, like a few of our dedications from recent episodes, who achieved beyond their profession to acquire the hallowed status, at least in my mind, of Great American. Now, last episode, it was the inspiration of Niall Kinnock. Today, we've got a little bit of a different path than what Kinnock sort of paved, and a path, by the way, in an individual who started out as a contemporary of Kinnock's, but nevertheless, um, this episode's dedication is just as inspirational of a journey as that of Kinnock. Now, it's amazing that this person is not a household name even in late 2023. So you think you know sports, right? Okay, now here's some hints as to who the dedication subject is. See if you can guess. The sport's going to be boxing. His nickname was the Mongoose, and then it became the Old Mongoose because this individual enjoyed one of the longest careers in the history of professional boxing. He fought in the ring for 28 years in 220 fights, if you can believe that. He logged over 130 career knockouts, for goodness sake. He was the longest reigning light heavyweight champion in history, holding the belt from 1952 to 1962. And he's the only boxer to have fought both, get this, Rocky Marciano and Muhammad Ali. Now, he lost to both, but he did knock Marciano to the canvas in that bout. Now, if you know who I speak of by now, you know sports and you definitely know boxing well, constant listener. I'm speaking of the great Archie Moore, who the boxing experts place as one of the top pound-for-pound fighters of all time and one of the greatest punchers of all time. But it's someone who I place as one of the most interesting of Americans because of what he achieved outside of the ring. And I remember I first became aware of him when I was a little kid when he was a trainer just outside of the ring, literally, when he was mentoring some of the biggest names in the golden age of 1970s boxing. He trained Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, and Ernie Shavers, just to name a few. But before that, during the 1960s, he founded an organization called Any Boy Can, or ABC, which taught boxing to underprivileged youth. Moore said that the mission of ABC was to help the youth to step off in life with their best foot forward. And the students were taught good sportsmanship and respect and confidence, and they were instructed to look a person in the eye and give them a firm handshake. Moore was actively involved in teaching kids about the dangers of drug abuse. He worked for the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development, and he would say, quote, I try to pass on the arts I know, self-control, self-reliance, self-defense. He was an actor on both the small screen and the big screen. Archie Moore appeared on both the Perry Mason and Batman TV series. That's about as diverse of a spectrum as an actor can achieve. And Archie Moore, he basically did it all. He rose out of abject poverty. He attained the ultimate status in his profession for the longest of time. He branched out into other career endeavors like training the next generation of boxing greats and acting. And then he made sure that he committed to helping those in need to see the right path in their development. It doesn't get much better in America than Archie Moore. And America needs more Archie Moores than ever. Archie Moore certainly set amazing standards for vitality and competitiveness over an extended period of time in his chosen profession. So let's make our first connection on that topic to what we've discussed through the archives of the far middle 
the various and many issues of concern when it comes to the future vitality and competitiveness of America. And there's much to cover under that topic, unfortunately, these days. But there is one worry, however, that may elevate above all others, and that is saying something. A bigger concern than energy policy and than China or even regulation. Maybe the only issue that compares at the magnitude of risk and damage being done by it is the abysmal state of our nation's finances, uh, the debt and deficit and such. Now, this top-ranking worry of mine that sort of rivals the state of our finances, it's been discussed in various Far Middle episodes and connections, and it's played prominent in my book, Precipice. And yes, it is another symptom and residual result of what happens when the left runs things, along with its trusty vassal, the public union. The issue is the state of public education in America, especially in our large cities. I saw a development in Chicago that greatly concerns me, constant listeners, and I see the already really bad going to the unfixable and maybe permanently broken soon, if the proposed approach by the Windy City's mayor is adopted. And it looks like it will not just be adopted, but also embraced. The Chicago public school system, it's already broken, mind you. Recent data from the city's own accountability report shows that in the city's worst schools, 75% of elementary students failed to meet the state standards and 95% of high school students failed to meet state standards. I mean, if that isn't a crisis, what is? And no one seems to care enough to demand reform. Now, this hits black students especially hard. The Illinois State Board of Education says that just 30% of black students meet or exceed reading standards in the third grade in Chicago's public schools, and that only 14% of 11th graders manage to do so. Now, 14% proficiency for 11th grade reading, that means that almost 9 out of 10 black 11th graders in the Chicago school district do not have acceptable reading proficiency levels. Now, how is Chicago's leftist mayor responding to this disaster? He wants to stop grading schools. And here's what he said, quote, I personally don't give a lot of attention to grades. My responsibility is to not just grade the system, but to fund the system. That's how I'm ultimately going to grade whether or not our public school system is working, based upon the investment we make to the people who rely on it, end quote. The Chicago Board of Education, it's already followed the mayor's hint when it stopped grading Chicago's schools earlier this year. Media in Chicago applauded the move, saying the grading of schools unfairly branded them. So now the rating, if you want to call it that, in Chicago for schools will not be if they teach kids how to read, write, and do basic math. And there won't be scores for schools with regard to those efforts. Now the scoring will be how much money is poured into the system. You see where this is going by now, right? So let me provide an example. Now the Illinois State Board of Education is awarding a commendable rating to schools in Chicago where not a single student was found to be able to read at grade level. Or where not a single student had proficiency in math. And that is from the state itself, mind you. So why are such abysmally performing schools being tagged by government as commendable? Because of the level they spend at. Per student funding in Chicago public schools, it sits just below $30,000, which is an unbelievable amount for so little in return. It's like spending up to a level of college tuition to get down to zero student proficiency levels. Where is the money going? Not to the student and not to legitimate good teachers. That's right. The money goes to bloated administrative staff 
into the bureaucracy, into the public teachers union coffers, so that the public union can then turn around and throw huge sums at politicians running for office, say running for mayor of Chicago or for governor of Illinois. And then the mayor and governor and legislature who were put in there and bought by the public union, they then end up doing its bidding, removing grading of schools based on academics, and justifying throwing more money to what the public union wants it to go toward. The hell with the kids and the parents and the taxpayers. And this is dooming an entire generation of young adults to a future of unrealized potential. No career skills, no quality of life, and it keeps not just going on, but it keeps getting worse with the level of dollars wasted and the embarrassing uh, academic results of the system. As I said, can you think of a more worrisome crisis than this? Not just for Chicago, but more or less for all of urban America, and not just for urban America, but increasingly for huge swaths of suburban America. It's shameful and it's distressing, I have to admit, but that is what you get when public unions and the left determine who our leaders are that set and reinforce what I would tag as these most abnormal of norms in public education. Now, one might ask, you might ask, if the public teachers unions in major school districts aren't focused on reading and math proficiency or academic standards at schools, what are they focused on these days? And that falls nicely into a connection to teachers unions and their obsession with climate change, of all things. In May of this year, the teachers union in Oakland, California, they went on strike. Now, not for details concerning compensation and tenure, mind you. The district offered a record raise that would immediately increase salaries by 22% plus a $5,000 bonus, which sounds awesome, right? I'd vote yes on that contract. But the strike still occurred. Why? Well, the union went on strike in Oakland in May in the name of climate change. The strike was by the 3,000-member Oakland Education Association, and the Oakland Unified School District has lost students for five consecutive years as families that were able to ended up running for the exits and escaped elsewhere, you know, to better performing and safer schools. And that created a fiscal problem for the district and city, and the district had to close schools to reduce costs. So with all that going on and to contend with, what does the public union want? What precipitated that strike in May? The union wanted the district to repurpose vacant school buildings for homeless housing and to landscape schoolyards with drought-resistant trees. It also demanded what they called a climate justice day for standards-based teach-ins, workshops, action, and field trips. Whatever happened to math class? And speaking of math class and overall academic proficiency, in the overall Oakland Unified test results for 2023, only 33%, just a third of students, met or exceeded the state standard in English. In math, just over a quarter of students met or exceeded the state standard. That's beyond embarrassing. That's bordering on criminal. Yet the pay raises are epic, the accountability is absent, and the public union's focus is on convenient and almost comical distractions of climate change and drought-resistant trees. Makes me feel more like crying instead of laughing, however. Chicago public schools being encouraged to scrap all accountability measures and to pour more taxpayer money down the gullets of the public union. The Oakland public schools striking over climate justice, depriving those students class time. In both districts, posting unbelievable degrees of academic ineptitude when one analyzes student proficiency levels in reading, math, science, and writing. Yeah, these issues are a crisis. 
They impact thousands of kids and thousands of families. And they're a pandemic of failure that is dooming the next generation. Now, why don't we hear more about these issues in the news? Where's the media? What happened to the journalists? Anyone with the slightest sense of objectivity would see major news stories with the plight of public ed in our large cities and what public unions are doing to make it worse. And journalism is supposed to be objective, right? Well, maybe wrong. At least that's how the thought leaders in journalism today are increasingly seeing it. So follow me here. Arizona State University, ASU, has the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism. And the program recently published a report that was titled Beyond Objectivity, Producing Trustworthy News in Today's Newsrooms. And you can access the study on the school's website, and you should give it a read. I warn you, however, it's a little bit shocking because it does defy common sense. Now, this report assesses what it means for journalism to be objective. And beyond objectivity, that report draws on more than 75 interviews with news leaders and journalists and other lifelong media professionals. As to the term objectivity, two prominent journalists argue that it's time to stop using the word. That's right. They think instead the profession should offer solutions for, quote, producing fair and accurate news that resonates with today's journalists and, more importantly, today's news consumers, end quote. So the report argues the concept of objectivity has evolved and that the field today needs to reconcile the core principles of fact-based journalism with the values of younger journalists in modern newsrooms to better serve today's diverse audiences, whatever that means. And here's an interesting quote from the dean of the Cronkite School about this report. At a time when journalism is under attack on multiple fronts, Downey and Hayward, those are the authors, they make a fresh and powerful case for fair, accurate, and responsive reporting, one that acknowledges how newsrooms and communities have changed since the days of top-down, one-size-fits-all news culture. Okay, so this is sounding, I think, more along the lines of the your truth, my truth, your facts, my facts, your sense of right, my sense of right, that type of thing. In the study, it labels objectivity being based in, using their terminology, traditional monolithic notions of objectivity. And it provides a playbook, I think that's a term they actually use, the playbook, to help newsroom leaders move beyond accuracy to truth, that's how they phrased it, to create a credible policy for journalists when it comes to social media and uh, in political activities, and to focus on essential original reporting, get to that in a minute, and to develop a set of core values for their newsrooms. Those are sort of the objectives of the playbook, so to speak. Wow. So first, how about that phrase, move beyond accuracy to truth? Whose truth, I wonder? And what is essential reporting? I mentioned essential reporting a second ago, at least as the ASU team puts it. And who gets to decide what is essential? Now, this reminds me of the pandemic lockdown period and bureaucrats and government arbitrarily getting to decide who worked in essential jobs and who didn't. Now, a sidebar irony here is that many government workers have yet to return to their workplace heading into 2024. I wonder what that says about being essential. But I digress, you know, back to the study on journalism and dropping the focus on objectivity. Here's a, another quote. This is from one of the study authors. If a newsroom does all of these things, it's transformative. Even if it's not a revolution, it's a significant evolution 
that will require a new generation of leadership that embraces these principles. Yeah, you know, requiring the newbies of the profession to embrace. And that, to me, sounds like a solid case of indoctrination. Now, I did find the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University's boilerplate description of its program to be a very interesting contrast to what's going on with this study. So allow me to read to you from the website how the effort and the school defines itself. The Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University is widely recognized as one of the nation's premier professional journalism programs and has received international acclaim, rooted in the time-honored values that characterize its namesake, accuracy, responsibility, objectivity, integrity, the school fosters journalistic excellence. Now, is the program still rooted in those time-honored values, or did it morph to something else? And I wonder what Walter Cronkite would think. Now, let's contrast what's going on in academia at Arizona State and the uh, Cronkite Journalism School and in newsrooms with the next breed of social warriors to where the head of the American public sits with respect to objectivity in journalism and media. Now, I'm not sure if we covered these survey stats in prior episodes of The Far Middle or not, but a rehash is in order with the connection string that we are on for episode 134 here. Gallup Knight conducted a poll a few years ago, back in 2020, found that 68% of Americans surveyed say they see too much bias in the reporting of news that is supposed to be objective as a major problem. 68% of Americans answered in the affirmative to that, uh, that position. And the Gallup poll found over 80% of Americans see either a great deal or a fair amount of political bias in news coverage. The survey was of over 20,000 Americans across all 50 states. Someone send that Gallup survey, please, to the Arizona State Cronkite School. And here's another survey to place the reputation of American media in an interesting light. Oxford in the UK, they performed a global survey of the public's view of media. Over 90,000 people across 40 plus countries. And one of the questions was, do you trust the news media in your country? Now, the nation that scored the highest level of trust was Finland at 65%, which isn't all that great if it's the best. Guess which nation came in last at only 29% of citizens saying they had trust in their media? The US of A, constant listeners, dead last. And journalists and entities like the Arizona State Cronkite School, they don't give a you-know-what. The editor of the San Francisco Chronicle put it best when it comes to the arrogance of media today. Quote, objectivity has got to go, end quote. I agree something has to go when it comes to modern journalism and media, but it ain't objectivity that's on my list. Not seeing and hearing enough objective reporting from journalism these days. And the dismal state of Oakland public schools and the games the public unions play at the expense of students and families and taxpayers. Those all tie into a connection about a great American very, very few people today ever heard of, which I suppose is yet another failing of media. Early November this year marked the 50th anniversary of an assassination of a hero educator in Oakland, California, and his name was Marcus Foster. He was America's first black superintendent of a large city school district, again in Oakland, 
and he was shot and killed leaving a school board meeting. So let's talk about who he was and why he was killed. Now, he started his career in Philly, his hometown, where he was a school principal, and he turned around a series of failing schools in Philadelphia in the late 1950s and early 1960s as he jumped from location to location assignments. And his most famous turnaround was Simon Gratz High School, which he took from worst to best in class. Before him, the saying was Gratz was for rats. And after Foster, Gratz had Latin classes, a range of classic school activities, and a sense of pride. He doubled college acceptance levels and halved the dropout rates. And when he was at Gratz, he would say, you don't have to have middle-class values, but you have to have middle-class skills. I love that. And Foster was one of the first public educators in urban America to view parents as sort of the customer and as a core ally, not an impediment to be neutralized and marginalized to the sidelines. Now, an interesting sidebar shows how effective Foster was. At one point, he was assigned a reform school where the problem students were sent to, not exactly a prime assignment. But Marcus Foster took the challenge on and began to build a Votech program at the reform school where he partnered with businesses to establish job pipelines. Now, the effort was a huge success, so much so that students at other locations started to request to be assigned to the reform school to be part of the Votech program. You believe that? And after rising through the ranks of the Philly public school system, ultimately to assistant superintendent, he jumped to the West Coast to take the superintendent role at the Oakland public school system in 1970. Now, this was coming off the 1960s, of course, and it was the Bay Area, so it was volatile and extremely leftist. So the more things change, I suppose, the more they stay the same, perhaps heading into 2024. Anyway, Foster became highly respected in Oakland, negotiating in a volatile environment with numerous groups and various political orientations. He raised the success of students in schools where many families struggled with poverty. And in 1973, there was a debate about what to do regarding school safety in Oakland. And some proposed using the Black Panthers as school security. Foster refused and instead was going to try to work with police and use student ID cards to protect students and keep intruders out of the schools uh, that shouldn't be there. Now, that didn't sit well with the left, which was more interested in revolution than student education. And Foster was shot dead on November 6th, 1973, as he left a school board meeting. Uh, Members of what was then an unknown group, the Symbionese Liberation Army, the SLA, They claimed responsibility, and the SLA sent letters to media claiming that they killed Foster because of his support to require that student identification card systems be adopted, which they called fascist. Foster was shot eight times with hollow-point bullets that had been packed with cyanide, and the SLA was classified as terrorist-based after that. Um, Also, they were involved with kidnapping and armed robberies, the most famous, of course, being Patty Hearst in those bank robberies. Now, we should remember the SLA and tag the left for murdering one of the nation's finest in Marcus Foster, not remembering the SLA for the made-for-TV drama of Patty Hearst. All right, as we bring episode 134 to a close, let's wish a happy birthday to one of the most accomplished rock musicians in the history of rock, yet one who very few people know of. I suppose um, that's a common theme with episode 134, and also an appropriate connection to, and very similar to, the great Archie Moore, 
who we kicked off this far middle installment with. And there's also a connection with this individual to the Bay Area, which has also been in focus for this episode, since one of his bands that he was famously associated with came out of San Jose. Now, like Archie Moore's nickname of the Mongoose, this performer shares, besides the birthday of December 13th with Moore, a nickname of an animal. But this time, the animal is, of all things, a skunk. I'm speaking of Jeff Skunk Baxter. Who? Well, consider this resume. He was a founding member of Steely Dan, along with Mr. Fagan and Becker. He played on the first three albums of Steely Dan and performed that awesome guitar solo on Ricky Don't Lose That Number. Then he jumped over to the Doobie Brothers, that Bay Area band that I just hinted at, just as they were gaining massive acclaim. And when Doobie Brothers founder Tom Johnston was hospitalized with a stomach ailment, it was Skunk Baxter who suggested bringing in singer-keyboardist Michael McDonald, with whom Baxter had worked with in Steely Dan. And that created the second version of the Doobies, somewhat different but just as special as the first version. Now Baxter is a consummate guitarist, and his track record of who he's worked with proves it. Here's some names. Eric Clapton. Cheryl Crow, Dolly Parton, Carly Simon, Ringo Starr, Gene Simmons from Kiss, Rod Stewart, Barbara Streisand, Donna Summer, Elton John, James Brown, and Linda Ronstadt, just to name the most notables. That's a list that could fill the entire Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he's a great producer as well. And I bet that Skunk has a story or two. Now, there's a guy who should absolutely write a memoir. Now, here's one of his stories that I pulled off of his website. One day, Skunk receives a phone call for an emergency session with Donna Summer when another guitarist wasn't available. So Summer was already in the studio, and Skunk didn't have time to go home for a guitar. So he stopped at the Guitar Center nearby, bought a $25 used electric guitar and a new set of strings, and then he rushed off to the studio. And he listened to the arrangement of the song, and he suggested that they step it up a bit, and the result was the now famous riffs at the beginning of the Donna Summer song, Bad Girls. Now, I know rock music isn't rocket science, but get this, Skunk Baxter knows rocket science too. Baxter was a member of an independent study group that produced the Civil Applications Committee Blue Ribbon Study, recommending an increased domestic role for U.S. spy satellites. He served on the NASA Exploration Systems Advisory Committee, Baxter held consulting contracts with the Pentagon's Missile Defense Agency and National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and he was nominated to chair the Civilian Advisory Board for Ballistic Missile Defense. He conducts wargaming exercises for businesses and corporations, and he has extensively wargamed with the military. Watch his talk on YouTube if you get a chance. It's titled Asymmetrical Thinking in a Conventional World. It's an awesome speech presentation video. So happy birthday, Skunk Baxter, you guitar hero and rocket scientist. Only in America can this happen, and only on the far middle can you learn about it. Before we meet again, go do some holiday shopping, considering helping out those less fortunate where you can.